hey, there's Bibles in the bench in front of you, and uh, I'll give you the page number of where I'm going to be reading from the Bible this morning. It's page 965, 965. It's the, it's the letter to Titus. Let me just tell you a little bit about that as you turn. 965 is the page. Um, last week, we started talking about this letter written to Titus. It's written by uh, Paul the Apostle, and he wrote a lot of the New Testament letters. And he's instructing Titus on how to help small groups of Christians to impact the island on which they live. And they lived on the island of Crete. They lived on the island of Crete. So he's, he's giving them instructions. How are we going to impact this island for Jesus? Now, we, one thing we learned last week was that Cretans had a reputation, right? All the philosophers and uh, poets of that era talked disparagingly about the Cretans, uh, that they were liars. And, uh, and part of it, liars and mercenaries and... Um, involved in all sorts of stuff. And, uh, but Cretans were worshipers of the god Zeus. And uh, Zeus himself was known to be a deceiver and a seducer of women. That was his reputation. So when you worship that, you get a certain, uh, you get a certain result. Uh, Christians were, were worshipers of Jesus. And so instead of imitating Zeus's deceitfulness and seducing ways, they were trying to imitate Jesus' truthfulness and his faithfulness. And so what or who you worship will determine the values that you hold. And if there's a few of you who all worship alike, you start creating something called culture. A culture is just basically assembling of of the values that you hold, right? And so here you had the Cretan culture, which was very different from the the culture of followers of Jesus. And so there's a culture emerging in Crete, a culture within a culture, and uh, one was based on the worship of, of Zeus and, and, uh, and, and, and deceiving, lying, seducing, and all sorts of different ways to get your way. They were also a very militaristic group because a lot of them were mercenaries back then. So if you think of sort of the Vikings of the Mediterranean or Maybe the Pirates of the Caribbean would be similar. But they were, they were, they were that group of people. And even the Greek culture that to the north of them would, would, uh, would say that about the ones who lived on the island of Crete. So here you've got uh, two cultures. You've got the Cretan culture, and you've got this new emerging culture. And Paul is writing to Titus to tell him, here's how to help this new emerging Christian culture grow and be strong, and to offer a cultural alternative on the island of Crete. So, let me just read to you, and then we'll get into it. Okay? So, Titus chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 5. Okay? So, it says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, 
holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things that they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets had said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Isn't that cool? Your own, your own prophets and poets and singers are saying terrible things about you. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they'll be sound in their faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. How many of you, I asked some of you guys, did any of you do the, some of you might have read the book of Titus, but I'm asking if you did the extra exercise. Did you read the book of Titus and look for the word good in it? Anyone do that? Sort of fish around? Yeah, a couple of you guys did. Okay, that's great. You're my two best friends. Okay, I encourage you to read the book of Titus. It seriously is 10 minutes to read the whole thing. Flip the page over. You'll see how long it is, right? It's only that long. Uh, We could have read it in probably five to 10 minutes publicly here, but I'm just dealing with this part. But encourage you and look for the word good. It really is focused about, uh, focused on doing good. That's a a big part of of what it's about. So Paul tells Titus, Titus, Paul tells Titus what his first job is. You need to appoint good leadership. And then, once you've done that, you also need to deal with bad leadership. Now, if you want to change any culture, this is probably your first step. Any culture. Your work culture, your school culture, um, any culture. Your family culture. Is you need to have good people with great influence. And you need to have bad people with diminishing or little influence. Right? Right? So that's why sometimes when a a company, an organization says, we're going to change our culture, but they don't change who's in charge, you don't get a changed culture. doesn't matter how many pep talks you get or things like that. You've actually got to put really good leaders into leadership, and you've got to make sure bad leadership are in leadership. Have you ever worked in a company? Maybe you've had this experience. You worked in a job site, and the the top boss comes in, the one who isn't there very often, he comes in and says, we're going to do differently. We're going to do better. Come on, guys. Let's just just make this a really good culture and a really good thing. And everybody is sort of nodding, but they all know that if you don't take out that supervisor over there and replace him with someone else, ain't nothing going to change. You need good leadership, and you need to replace bad leadership. So that's true in anything, you know, you can use that in your business scenarios, you can use that in your school scenarios, you can use that in your family as well. You've got to have good people with greater influence and diminishing influence of bad people. So the goal is to create, for the Christian culture here, is to create a compellingly different culture within the culture of Crete. And to do that, they're going to need leaders who embody four countercultural traits. And I'm going to walk you through them here. The four countercultural traits that Paul is recommending. Okay? So the first one we'll find, let me just flip back here. The first one you're going to find in verse uh, 6, I believe. Yeah. 
An elder must be blameless. We'll get to blameless later. Faithful to his wife. I spent quite a bit of time on this last week. I'm going to hopefully move over it faster today. So people have come to trust God, come to follow him. They've accepted him as the one who saves them from their sins. And then they've also accepted his leadership in their lives. And a part of that leadership is they come to understand that God requires um, men, in particular this is written particularly for men, but it's applicable to women, right? For them to be faithful in marriage. For them to be faithful to their wife. So the, the faithful to his wife is this description of, of this elder. Remember, this is written about what you need for leaders, but this is also written for what is good for the entire Christian community. Okay, so this is, if you say, well, I'm not an elder in the church. Put that aside for now and focus in on the fact, what would be good for you? What does God want for your life, right? So people come to trust God. They also come to trust his sexual ethic for their lives. They come to trust that his sexual ethic is good, better than the Cretan sexual ethic, which involved being very promiscuous and in many ways. And they, and, and they come to believe that God's sexual ethic is good for the world, it's good for their family, it's even good for them themselves. So just to put it down to very simple terms, if you're a married man, be faithful to your wife. If you're a married woman, be faithful to your husband. If you're single, then remain sexually abstinent and chaste in that way. So let me give you some verses. I'll let the scriptures do most of the talking here in this one. Proverbs 5, 15 to 18, gives us a little picture of that uh, being faithful to each other. It says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public, public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. So, let them be yours alone. I love that phrase, yours alone. No, outs- no third parties allowed. No Hollywood script telling us exactly how this should be. Uh, really, no comparison game with other couples. Just yours alone. A little garden of intimacy in marriage where it's just you. And there really is no other third party. Wonderful. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 gives us some more. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So this gives us some of the the motivation for why um, we live very different counterculturally in the area of sexual ethics because we don't belong to ourselves because God has purchased us for himself through Christ's death on the cross we honor him with our bodies. We realize we belong to him. I, I shared this last week that this is a really helpful verse when you come to temptation. Say it to yourself. I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. So I'm going to honor God with my body. Right? If you know the whole line, you just need to say, I'm not my own. You're good. Okay? Hebrews 13.4. Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. These are both called to... Both, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. Those are both countercultural concepts. I have friends, good friends, friends I love, who don't think marriage is anything. In fact, they, they've done away with marriage, and, and they don't honor it. They don't think it's, they think it's nothing. Also, they don't think that the marriage bed should be kept pure, that that's a big deal either, right? Good friends, I love them, but they're living by a different sexual ethic than I am. 
These are countercultural counter se sexual ethics and becoming more so all the time. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. Whatever sins sexually sins against their own body. Flee from sexual immorality. The old King James Version used to say, Flee fornication. Basically, don't linger around temptation. Don't linger around temptation in this area, but run from it. So if you, if you have any friends at all, I believe you do, and you're, you're, you get to that point in life, maybe if you're younger, you don't have these conversations, but if you're an adult or you're in the workplace or, or, some, or you're in post-secondary education, there's probably conversations about se sexual ethics that are happening, and you'll realize that Canadian values are changing and have changed, uh, and that if you live like the Bible describes in regard to sexual ethics, you will be living very counterculturally. Uh, and we're called to love people who've embraced a different sexual ethic. Let's be clear about that. We're absolutely called to love people who've embraced a different sexual ethic, but we are also called to trust God's sexual ethics and live by those ones. Uh, this is my advice. If you want to put a dent into a wayward culture in this area, my proposal is that your first go-to should not be to go protest someone else's sexual ethics. Your first go-to would be to implement Jesus' sexual ethics in your own life. For example, don't just say following Jesus is a better way to live. Demonstrate its goodness by allowing your life to be transformed by him. To love your wife as Christ loves the church is a big challenge. Don't say it lightly. Jesus died for the church. He gave his life for the church. You want to love at that level? There's a, there's a road to, to countercultural living. Right? How about responding to your husband as the church is called to respond to Christ? That's not easy either. You want to do something truly countercultural? Do that. What if you're not married? How about showing how important union with God is by embracing celibacy and sexual abstinence? Honor God with your love life, whether you're married or single. All of us should strive towards a life where, as Ephesians 5.3 says, there's not even a hint of sexual immorality. Pure, clean, God-honoring sexual ethic. That's what's proper for God's holy people. All right, I'm going to move on. I touched on it last week. If you want more on that and some specifics, listen to last week's podcast. So culturally different, we're starting with culturally different marriages or culturally different sexual ethic, but then we go to culturally different families. It says that a man who's that an elder must be a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now, I've got to take a little bit of a detour on this one, a little bit of a rabbit trail, just because when you get to certain scriptures and you know you probably won't get to them again in years, you got, then there's stuff you've got to deal with. Okay, so there's two schools of thought about this phrase. A man whose children believe and are not open to a charge of being wild and disobedient. It sounds like two different things. But I want to propose that it's actually more one thing. So, a man whose children believe. You want to be an elder, your children have to believe. So if your kids don't believe, you can't be an elder or you can't lead in the church. I, I, want, to, I want to propose to you that, and I almost never do this with the Bible. As a pastor, I almost never do this. I, lots of pastoral friends, they're always going into the Greek words and explaining the background. And it's good, but I want you to be confident that you can actually read the Bible for yourself. And generally, across the board, you're going to get 
stuff from the Holy Spirit he's going to speak into your life. So I don't go to Greek words, so it's sort of like somebody has secret knowledge and you don't. That's, I don't think, a healthy way to approach the Word of God. Uh, I remember William Tyndale said to the bishop, when I'm done translating the Bible, the plowboy will know more of the scriptures than you do. And I think all of us are just simply plowboys and girls who have the access to the Word of God and we should rejoice in it and we should read it confidently. So I'm going to do something I rarely, almost never do, and that is the Greek words can be translated two different ways on this word. I almost never do this. I hate doing this, but I'm going to do it. It can be translated believe and it can be translated faithful. Okay? Translated believe and faithful. Okay? I'm, I'm going to try to go through this quickly because I don't want to lose all my time and the rest of what I have to say. So, I think the emphasis is on engaging and managing and leading your family and not on whether your children are believers in Christ. Okay? And here's my reasons why. There's two options for what it could be translated, believe or faithful. You might have a Bible that actually gives that option in the, in the bottom, the little footnotes at the bottom. I'm not sure if you do or not. I know the bench Bibles don't have that there. Let me give you the reasons why I think it doesn't mean believe and it actually means be faithful or really behave is what I think it is the essence of what it was saying. Paul's letter to Timothy, this is one to Titus. Paul writes a similar letter to Timothy, and he gives the requirements for elders to Timothy as well. And in his letter to Timothy, he doesn't have this. He has almost everything else we're reading today, but he doesn't have this. Okay? So that's one reason why I, I think that, there's, that this is, should be translated faithful rather than, than believe. Okay? It's also as pointed out to me last week, that Greek or Roman fathers had absolute say over their homes and could declare quite strongly that we are believers. Canadian parents don't nearly have that level of authority, especially, well, if you're Canadian-born. If you're from another culture, maybe you do have that authority, but Canadians don't tend to have that same authority in their own lives. We tend to declare intentions as parents, and we pursue them, but we put a lot more emphasis on the choice of the child. Sometimes this is good, and maybe sometimes this is not good. But I can't imagine a parent in the island of Crete saying, should we serve Christ or Zeus? Hmm. Let's get a family meeting together, and we all have one vote. I can't imagine that. So to say, in this culture, it would have been easy to say, yes, all my children are believers. They're all following my lead. I'm I'm the father who has autocratic authority in this home. So it would have been much easier for uh, kids who might be doubtful or flying under the radar to be seen as believers in this context. Whereas in Canada, we're more likely to say, uh, you know, my kids are making their own choices, right? I'm following Jesus, but I'm not sure, you know, but they may not be. So we're dealing with the we're dealing with the guilt that has arisen in the church over the years over the fact that sometimes you have a leader and then they have a child who doesn't believe and then there's enormous pressure placed on that leader to make their child believe or resign from their leadership. Okay? So I'm just keep going. What do you make of an elder who has a number of believing children but only one who is not? Let's say you've got six kids. God bless you if you do. Okay? Six kids and five of them just love Jesus and following Jesus and one is not. Well, what do you make of that? If most of uh, uh, elders' children are believers, is he not a good manager of his household? You'd say, well, probably he is. 
Or does the one unbelieving child call into question his overall managerial ability? If it does, then why did any of his children turn out to be believers? Let me get down to what I, my conclusion on this. All the requirements for eldership that are listed in this passage, like being married to just one woman and uh, not being drunk and all the different ones we're going to get at in a little bit, are actions of personal responsibility. They put the onus on the elder, not on their child. Okay? And I think the, first, the, the worst abuse I can think of, if we put the onus... If we put the onus on the child and not the elder, the worst abuse I can probably think of is that a parent in leadership in the church will feel this pressure and they, uh, for a child who is wayward or a child who doesn't believe, and they will put that... Um, I'm trying to imagine what the words would be. Something like this, a conversation uh, parent to child. Daddy is an elder in the church or mommy is in leadership or whatever role it is. And uh, I can't be in leadership unless you believe, so. I think that is wrong, 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 wrong. Let me make it one worse. Let me make it even worse. And this is only I can do this because I'm a pastor. Because daddy's job depends on you believing. Then. That is, like, abusively wrong. Right? I believe this whole passage is speaking to the responsibility that's firmly weighted upon the elder, not upon the child. So I'm just saying this because I'm, and, and there's disagreement in the church on this, and I'm okay with that tension that exists, but I'm just telling you where I land, you can read it for yourself, judge for yourself. I'm not the final word by all means, but I do believe that God is putting the responsibility firmly upon the parent to take a stance in the home to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord because parents set the tone in the, ho- in the home. They should set the tone. If the kids are ruling at age three or four, you've got to nip that in the bud fast. Please set the tone in your home. Parents. Parents also say, we're going to serve the Lord as a family. This family is not going to be, we're not going to follow the values of, 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 of that Cretan values of, of you know, that surround us. We're not going to be, uh, we're not followers of Zeus. We don't follow those values in Canada. We're not, we're not primarily Canadian. We are primarily Christian. And where those values conflict, we are going to run by the Christian values in this home, right? Now, children have free will. They'll believe or they won't believe. But we are going to create an environment where the gospel is communicated where Jesus is honored and glorified, and as parents, we're going to lead the way in serving Jesus. Who sits on the throne of this home? Jesus does. And as a father or as a mother, we lead the way in serving him. We lead the way in serving Jesus. We're an example of serving Jesus. We're growing in our relationship with him. I'm not talking about having perfect kids or perfect parents, because none of us are those but we're talking about parents that are consistently growing to be like Jesus and managing a home environment that honors Christ. A home that's built on Christian values and not values that contradict with that. Okay, that's that one. So culturally different marriages or sexual ethic, culturally different families or culturally different parenting, you might say. And the third one is culturally different leadership. These are all countercultural things that will create a very different culture 
than the one that surrounds the Christian community. Culturally different leadership. Okay, so the verse says that these men are not, to, these elders, and they were men in this case, they're not, but this is true for all of us, not to be overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. gain. So blameless, okay, so this is five areas to avoid blame if you're a leader, but also this is true for any Christian. Overbearing. Overbearing means you misuse power over others. If you've been given power, it's so you can be a servant leader, so that you can lead well, and so that you benefit others. It's not for your own sake. Don't be overbearing, right? Quick-tempered. Quick-tempered is when people have to walk on eggshells around you because they never know when you're going to blow up. If that's you and you're a follower of Jesus, don't gloss it over. Bring that to Jesus. Talk to Jesus about it. Talk to a, a friend. Confess it to another believer. Say, man, I'm, my anger issue, I can't seem to get it under control. Have those conversations that will lead to uh, God being able to work in your life to change that. Drunkenness. I mean, drunkenness, that's the easiest thing is, well, that's addi- you know, addiction to alcohol, but obviously it uh, can be an addiction in our culture to any substance, right? Any substance that causes us to lose control. And uh, so drunkenness. Violent, right? Getting your way by physical force, right? I, I better do what they say because they might just up and hit me, right? I used to work in one work environment where I had where fist fights broke out regularly. And I managed to stay out of the fist fights. I've never really won one in my life. So I, in that environment, I decided to not test my record. Uh, but I thought, this is crazy. This is crazy. Like people actually have sway in this this place by how big they are and how violent they are. That's terrible leadership. Someone needs to change this culture. Pursuing dishonest gain. Getting your way, but there's a couple ways like you think of this. Money is another way to manipulate. And it's not just physical violence, but people sometimes get their way by the fact that they have money and others don't. And that's not good leadership, Right? Or here's the one that was happening probably in this context is people were appearing to serve God, but they were really in it for the money. That's not godly leadership. Then it goes on to say, rather, and here's the flip side to all this, rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So all of these are generally opposites to what we just read. You know, the drunken, angry, overbearing, you know, leader... And now you've got self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Basically, it's, it's the polar opposite. But there's one phrase in there that I think is absolutely key, and if we missed it, we might really miss it. And that is the word, he must be hospitable. And why this is so important is because up until now, when I'm talking about creating a different culture, some of you have, might have been thinking that this culture, this Christian culture, And this Canadian culture or Cretan culture, depending on which context you're thinking in, never intersect. Oh, yes, Pastor Steve, let's create a totally separate culture where we don't engage with the other culture. We'll keep ourselves pure from the world and we won't have any relationship with anything that can defile us. Lots of people have in their their Christian, um, in Christian history, they've tried to do this. 
And I don't think this was God, ever God's intent. You look at Jesus' teachings about being salt and light in the world. Well, salt is a preserving influence, right? So if the church pulls itself away from the world, what is it, how can it be a preserving influence? And light is illuminating. But if the light hides itself away from the darkness, right? That's what the whole, this little light is mine, this little light of mine song is about, right? Hide it under a bushel? Thank you. That's the right answer. No. Because we're not meant to be separate. We're not meant to be, we're not meant to be, um, exclusively or, or cut off from the world. We're supposed to be engaged. So that's why we're on the same community organizations as people who don't believe as we do. We're, we're in, on sporting teams with them. Uh, we go to school with them. We work with them. We, we do block parties with them. We invite them over for dinner. They invite us over for dinner. We, we share power tools over the fence with them. And we sometimes get them back. You know, we... we we're meant to live in relationship with a culture that maybe we don't have the same values as. Sometimes we do. Let me just say this real quickly. Sometimes we find we're just overlapping in many areas. Canadian culture, Christian culture, you find like, hey, yeah, well, they, want, they believe this, we believe this. That's the same. That's awesome. And then other times you're like, well, it seems like most Canadians believe this, but that's actually different from what uh, Christ teaches. So that's different, okay? So you've got to use your discernment. It's not just so all 100% one way or 100% the other way. You've got to go, what values in the culture are not in line with the values of Christ? And what values in the culture could I actually bless, could I actually encourage? If I see that in somebody who's not a believer, I could say, oh, that's so good, because it is good. In fact, it lines up very well with with the values of Christ. So you've got to be discerning. So just in case that's confused where you say, I'm saying that everything in the Canadian culture is evil and bad. I'm not saying that. I'm saying use discernment to figure out which is which. So we're not an isolated culture. Hospitality is the key. And hospitality, back to, it's, a, it's a word, basically means openness to the stranger. So the person that is very different from you they may be very different from you with their lifestyle. Uh, racially, they might be very different from you. Um, background, they might be very different from you. Uh, life stage, they might be very different from you. Hospitality means that doesn't matter. You engage relationally with people who are very differently. Otherwise, how else are people going to see a different culture and become curious or be influenced by it. What's the point of creating a different culture within a culture that no one has access to? We need to be in relationship with people who don't share the same values, to bless them, to love them, to engage with them, but also that they can have a window into how Christ has called us to live. So not an isolated culture, hospitality. And so that's why the leaders in the church and all of the church are called to be engaged, to, be, to practice hospitality and engage with the stranger. Number four, culturally different message. So different, different marriages, different families, different leadership, but a culturally different message. 
says he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So encouraging others by sound doctrine. That means that if, if you're a leader, but all of us should, should aspire to this as well, is that we need to do what 2 Timothy 2.15 says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So it's really important that we, we uh, engage the word of God, that we, we, we learn as much as we can about what is it that God requires? What is it that God has done? How has God approached us? What is the, what is the, the, the overarching narrative of God's work in the world? Again, the Bible from, from beginning to end is telling us how God is reconciling people to himself. And there's all sorts of different neat chapters. Like in the Old Testament, you learn how he's reconciling people to us and he's using a nation, the nation of Israel, to do it. But then in the New Testament, you learn about how he is using uh, the church, which isn't one nation, isn't just one culture, the Jewish culture, who, to be an example to the world, but it's actually transcultural, right? So it's, it's, it's people from Asia, Africa, South America, North America, Europe, um, Australia, what are they? They're their own thing? Okay, you know, it's all of us. It doesn't belong to one culture. Faith in Christ is, is transcultural. That's not one culture. So we need, to, we need to understand the word of God and we need to handle it well. And hopefully, you know, coming to church, helpful. hopefully your pastors are, we're also pursuing this, right? We're also trying to be a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth, right? But we need to do that too. Sound doctrine is encouraging. That's what it says here. Encourage people with sound doctrine. The true message of Jesus is encouraging. But it, there's, a, there's a, a shadow side to this same command, and I, I want to get into that a little bit because we don't talk about it very often. It says, encourage others by sound doctrine, and I hope that coming to church on Sundays is an encouragement to you. I hope your life group where you uh, share sound doctrine is encouraging to you, right? Sound doctrine basically means just like it's, it's the dependable truth as has been passed on all the way down. It's ancient and dependable and proven, and generation after generation after generation after generation after generation has said, yes, 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 this is life. This is life-giving. This is amazing. I love this. I love the truth about Jesus, the good news, the gospel about who he is and, and how that uh, changes my life. But what about the other side? It says, refute those who oppose it. Remember I said there's good leaders to be appointed, but there's bad leaders, and their influence needs to diminish. Right? Refute those who oppose it. And I'm going to read what he says after that. Here's some of the reasoning. For are there many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception? This is what's happening on Crete. Especially those of the circumcision group. The circumcision group, they were teaching, yeah, yeah, follow Jesus. But in order to do that, you need to be ethnically Jewish. So these were uh, sort of Greek people and in the Roman Empire, and they were saying, you need to be Jewish like us, so you need to get circumcised, you need to follow Jewish customs. That's what the circumcision group was. It says, they must be silenced. Ooh, that's pretty severe, eh? They must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. 
and that for the sake of dishonest gain. So they've got bad motives, but they're teaching bad teaching. And the bad teaching, the thing about the bad teaching is that the good news stops being good news when it gets mixed with all these extra things. Instead of saying, Jesus has done it all on the cross for you so that you can have relationship with God. It's saying, Jesus did this on the cross, 